Welcome to episode 5 million, aka 5, of What Have We Done? A podcast for wine enthusiasts. Amateur enthusiasts. And and today we are going to talk about um, the harvest season because it is right now um, the big annual uh, vineyard harvest. We're going to talk a little about about the process of the harvest, sort of what to look for, to know when to harvest, and talk a little bit about the work that goes into that process. So, harvest is a pretty intense time. Kevin and I did a little bit of digging, including watching some YouTube videos, and I think he watched a documentary and followed some podcasts, uh, excuse me, um, blogs of what harvest is like, as well as followed the hashtag harvest2020 on Instagram to kind of get a feel of what goes down during harvest, as well as, you know, the different steps or processes of this time. Yeah, I also thought it was interesting to do um, an episode on it just because of all the, you know, the coverage of the the wildfires and stuff in California and how that coincides with with harvest season. Um, And it's just something I didn't know very much about. And when I kept seeing the pictures of, you know, grapes being harvested with like, you know, just like the mountain tall fires and smoke and stuff in the background. I think we just wanted to explore a little bit more of what, what that process looked like and um, you know who was doing the picking, how was the picking being done, um, and what other information can we, can we learn about the, the harvesting process. Yeah, so in California, harvest typically starts in mid-August, um, though it's very dependent on weather. If it's particularly warm, harvest might start a little bit earlier. Um, and ranges usually about six to eight weeks maybe 10 depending on again the season to about mid-november and a lot of what goes into determining when to start a harvest or how to conduct it is really based on how the grapes are looking uh, and a winemaker's familiarity with their vineyard and the really like the gamble that you can play on like will it get really warm like it is today and be 100 degrees or is there going to be an early frost or a sudden storm that may ruin a crop um, because of how delicate grapes are during the like final stages of ripening. Mm-hmm. And it's all very, very weather dependent and it's sometimes very hard to predict for that reason. Um, so a lot of the bigger wineries um, will have I mean, full-time vineyard managers who are just sort of patrolling the vineyards and taking tests and analyzing the grapes and trying to make a determination in any given year what is the most ideal moment in which to start picking that grape. Um, then of course how long is it going to take to, to pick the entirety of, of the vineyard, so how many hours need to go in to make sure the grapes are, are consistent and all picked within a relatively short um, time window. Um, yeah. Yeah, and because of the short span of time in which harvest occurs, there are extremely long hours dedicated <laughs> because <laughs> our uh, <laughs> cameos, our cat cameos. Sounds like a good thing for second wind for the day. Hey! What are you doing? If you have thoughts on wine, come share them. Yeah. <laughs> How is that comfortable? What are you doing? 
Psycho. So, um, because of how intense harvest is, it's often a time in which teams are put together depending on the size of the winery and uh, the amount of labor determined to go into harvesting these grapes and they are extremely long hours. So you're looking at a 5 a.m. wake up call and working 12, 14, possibly even longer hours to, in order to make sure that all the picking, sorting, cleaning, barreling, cleaning, more cleaning is done um, and it doesn't compromise the integrity of the the harvest and the, the wine that winemakers want to make. I even saw some like harvest montage films on the internet and stuff of like nighttime picking. They had these like big like projecting lights and just working through the night and stuff too. Um, which is especially when the weather. So today it's over a hundred degrees. Um, yeah. When when the weather gets like that, and if that is the time to pick that extreme weather can really change the grape very, very quickly and take it from a perfect time to pick to a few days too late to pick. Um, and so I think time is really of the essence to, again, just maintain as much consistency and, um, you know, stability in, in, the, in the harvesting process. And since grapes become more delicate with the heat, a lot of winemakers will also opt to harvest in the wee hours or in the evening because it's tip technically it should be cooler <laughs> and it should ensure that like the the grapes can not break or, or there won't be any um other damage to the grapes mm -hmm. yeah so six to eight weeks um is a common time period for um working in the harvest for a specific um vineyard or um a winemaker and you know, the general pattern is that the, the bigger the wine producer, the more year-round like year staff are going to be on hand who can be sort of redirected and repurposed towards the harvesting. Um, and the smaller the vineyard, the more you're going to be relying on more sort of independent contractor um, seasonal labor. And if it's really small, usually that means like family and friends. Um, and a lot of the smaller um, vineyards that we follow on Instagram and stuff, we're watching their their posts, and you see like the winemaker themselves out there, you know, picking the grapes and working with a very a very small team. Um, yeah, and then the you know other ones that don't have that capacity, you're going to be looking to um, yeah secure more seasonal and, and temporary work to help um, with that harvesting process. So to deep dive into what that laboring at the, the hiring processes for vineyard labor, we started digging into hiring ads, <laughs> which I wish I could say was a lot more fruitful than it was. Um, there was kind of like a three different slots in which we found information about. The smallest was kind of this call for apprenticeship. The um, often sommeliers as well as people who are going to be dedicating their careers to wine or restaurant industry and want to get involved with harvest, which really gives you a very text, like a, I don't know, just 
this like the dirt I think someone described it as like you can get the dirt under your fingernails and you'll know what kind of soil is like going into the wine that's being made and and just like this very sensorial experience you have that demographic who are really interested in getting really familiar with the processes of harvesting wine and they'll go out to well-respected vineyards and become apprentices often you know taking a massive pay cut in order to do this work and there's a very specific subset <laughs> that kind of falls into that realm. Yeah, a lot of them I saw were like, you know, preferred student in, you know, the culture, like undergraduate degree program, that kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. And then there was this similar, but the subset of hiring that was part of the become a harvest intern a way to spend, you know, a couple weeks, you know, maybe get college credit, but if you have no experience, it's a hard labor, you get to become a part of the community. And it was very much geared towards that can-do, go-getter attitude with positivity and, you know, wanting to make a difference. And, and I could see that being more of the, or a lot of those ads were coming from small to medium-sized vineyards that needed the labor beyond the family and friends that often would do this kind of work, but weren't necessarily needing to invest in too much seasonal temporary labor, as we will discuss in a moment. Um, and there was definitely um, a bit of a a rosé lens to the vlogs I was reading about, you know, how exciting it was to work, and I bet it is exciting and grueling to work on these harvest um, season jobs. And then finally there was the more of the ads that were related to seasonal temporary labor, often um, from Mexico or Central America, and um, we were kind of investigating these ads in Spanish because uh, it was really hard to find these ads towards that demographic of laborers in English. Um, and those were a little bit more, um, less specific, I suppose. Um, there was a call for being able to do physical labor, like the other job postings had, as well as for um, ability to drive, you needed a driver's license, often they call for transportation, but there was a specific, I guess, condition that you already had to have a visa and that you were able to speak basic English and have math, like basic math skills and reading and writing. Yeah, and those were, um, once the discussion went more towards the immigrant and migrant labor workforce, I think the information unsurprisingly became harder and harder to, to get at. Um, so it took a lot more digging. And actually most of what I found was uh, on YouTube in old like news articles and local news stories that kind of hit on different themes within the, the labor um, the labor use uh, in, in, in wine harvesting. And one of those sort of common things that were, were talked about in multiple different stories in multiple different time periods, but especially in the past three or four years, um, has been the the problem with an over-dependency on a immigrant and labor workforce and the shortages that we're now facing of labor. And these conversations were often not wine-specific, 
they were sort of looking at the larger agricultural situation um, in California where a lot of the, the wine is, is made. Um, but definitely um, a labor shortage in recent years has really made it harder and harder for, um, for vineyards to keep up. Uh, and, and there's a few reasons why the, the, the labor is harder and harder to, to get. Um, first of all, here in California, there's not as much money in these types of agricultural industries. And so a lot of the sort of classic, um, you know, heavy labor, manual labor type of jobs that were originally um, filled by largely immigrant labor here in California um, are actually found in, in things like construction, which are going to pay significantly higher with the same qualifications and the same basic labor pool um, as agricultural stuff. And especially here in the Bay Area where the cost of, of housing is so astronomically high, there's, there's a huge construction boom. Um, so there's just more competition within those industries. More and more industries are reliant on seasonal migrant and immigrant labor. Um, the other one that was kept coming up was the, the marijuana industry. Oh, really? Yeah, and, and that being being legalized, um, was it made for also a dependence on, you know, largely agriculturally focused migrant labor. Um, except that the weed industry is significantly more profitable than the wine industry. <laughs> and so those hourly seasonal jobs also pay significantly higher than than vineyards can. Um, so, you know, why get paid half the price to toil around the fields with grapes when you can go pick weed and make a lot more money a lot more quickly? <laughs> Yeah, the, the hourlies I was seeing was anywhere between $13 to $20, mm-hmm. which really, for the amount of effort and labor you're putting in, is really nothing, and if <laughs> especially you can, if you have to travel. Exactly. If you can just go into construction or, or weed and get 30 or 40 an hour, which is much more appropriate for the, mm-hmm. um, the cost of living around here, um, certainly would. And I wonder, too, like with especially with the wildfires and changing climate, that having an effect on even being able to live in these areas with the threat of evacuation, um, as well as the immediacy of harvest. So if if there's wildfires that are occurring in early August or mid-August, just when harvest is happening, you're going to have, particularly the smaller or medium-sized vineyards, making immediate decisions to harvest which if you're waiting for a visa or needing mm-hmm. to respond to an ad, you're not going to have that kind of time flexibility. You're just going to, but as a winemaker, you're going to just take whoever's available because you don't want to lose your crop completely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there was a few different effects that this overall shortage kind of had on, on winemaking and wine production. And, and the first one that I kept finding um, was that more and more wineries are more and more focused on high-profile varietals. So the price per bottle of a bottle of cab is generally significantly higher than other more lesser known um, or less marketable varietals. And so a lot of places are actually tearing out vineyards of non-cab varietals and planting hmm. calves because of financial constraints of having adequate labor to cover the agricultural harvesting costs 
become such that uh, it just makes a lot more sense to be growing grapes that fetch more per, per bottle and that yield a higher um, hmm. cash value, which is really unfortunate. Yeah, I think in the past few episodes we've really covered a lot of kind of unique and uh, really fun different varietals, and I think the, the homogenization of, of grape varietals because of the the exorbitant costs of agricultural production is a really really negative thing. That um, yeah, hopefully hopefully doesn't really continue in a much larger scale. It'd be a great loss for for everyone really, especially since. You know, you don't plant grapes and they become amazing overnight. It's years, if not decades, of mm-hmm. grapes coming into their own. And, you know, a lot of these more um, different or, or less known varietals require cultivation. Um, so that would be... That would be very upsetting. And, and I feel like, you know, like that, that trend... I think we briefly mentioned this when we spoke about the Trentini area in Italy mm-hmm. and the homogenization of varietals through um, genetic engineering. Mm-hmm. How you know the the idea was great. We can make a grape that is going to be resilient against climate change and that kind of homogenized the types of varietals that were coming out. Until people were like, wait a minute, not only are these grapes less resilient in the long run to drastic changes in climate or just regular changes in climate um, they are like taking away from the the depth of the grape flavor so um, I don't know well I guess we'll see I mean that's like yeah. a, another deep dive in and of itself um, yeah yeah and then another another um, side effect that I kept finding um, due to the labor shortage is also the continued automation of the winemaking yeah. industry and the increased reliance on machinery that can do the picking itself. And in the past, one of the reasons that people don't rely on machines is A, for accuracy. You know, hand-picked grapes can really ensure um, a certain attention to detail and quality and consistency within the grape harvesting, uh, but also that machinery in, in decades past was just exorbitantly expensive and no one's but the no one but the large wineries could afford it anyways well the cost of, of production of that machinery has gone down so the the consumer cost of that machinery has also gone down and, and more and more places are, are relying on that because that takes the the seasonal labor kind of out of the picture completely mm-hmm. um now the downside of that is um over-reliance on machinery reduces your overall quality of the grape being picked. Um, and there's, the jury's out, I think, on the actual effect of that. You'll find a lot of proponents of the machinery. Um, I think the general consensus was machinery worked better for reds than for whites, mm-hmm. because for whites, quality was even more important in terms of the um, overall aesthetics of the wine being produced, whereas red, it was sort of a little bit less detectable, so there was a little bit more of a margin uh, of error that was possible. Um, but yeah, that was also one of those things I think just had stigma, because sort of this is the way it's always been done. Uh, yeah. I'm not sure if the actual effect of that machinery is quite as negative as some people said it was. I'm skeptical of that, but certainly it's, um, it's sparking more debate and bringing up really big questions of, of quality. 
Yeah. Um, this kind of ties into our discussion earlier about like what happens during harvest, but uh, there are definitely several stories that I read about you know the winemaker who goes out into the vineyard and like walks around and like tastes grapes mm. <laughs> in order to understand like is this grape ready for harvest? What is the flavor profile? And you know there's a familiarity that comes with not only doing this work for years and years, but also in recognizing like the future potential of grapes. So you're tasting a grape that is not going to taste like the final product, but will have hints of that earthiness or minerality, tannins or you know, overall robustness or what have you. If you're thinking reds or delicate or acidity, if you're thinking whites. And um, knowing that is a very you know, tactile, practical, lived experience that I think the ar the arguments in the articles was that no machine can kind of take that mm -hmm. um, from like no machine can replace that in the winemaking process and mm -hmm. that kind of reflects back to whether or not people use the fancy refractometer machine which mm -hmm. I think you read more about than I did <laughs> yeah so the question is is Kenna is Kenna a really good winemaker determine the exact time for picking for an entire vineyard versus having the more control of sort of going through it row by row mm -hmm. um, and really having a lot more control over that process. Um, yeah, I think the, the jury is out on that one for sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, and the last thing I'm going to talk about is in terms of the immigrant labor stuff before we get too much into, um, you know, what does the harvest look like? What are, what are we looking for here? Um, was the the H-2A foreign labor program. And that is um, mm, yeah. one of the things that a lot of larger wineries that can afford it um, are using to make up the, the deficit in migrant labor. Uh, and basically that's this is a government program like the other H-Visa processes that allow for um, people to enter the country to specifically to perform specific work duties for a specific period of time um, and to be able to get temporary visas um, to do that legally. And this, this program started as a way to sort of combat the large-scale um, reliance on undocumented labor in the agricultural sector, um, especially in, here in California, but also lots of other states across the country. Um, and the good thing about this program is that it has lots of strings attached and so one of the one of the biggest issues with over reliance on undocumented labor um, were the the human rights issues that came with that because it was all under the table because it was technically illegal um, there were very few if any protections for, for the labor uh, and for the people actually doing these jobs it's incredibly volatile to even get to this country um, but then to deal with potential exploitation um, through employers uh, things like that. So this this program requires, um, you know, a certain wages to be paid. Requires employers to provide free housing and daily meals for the for the duration of the visa. Um, and overall, I think it's a yeah, it's a it's a good idea. It's a it's a good program. I know there's some issues with it. Um, but the the two issues with that are one. Um, in the current situation, in this year's harvest and the wonderful year of 2020, of course, <laughs> COVID also exists, yeah. and those programs are largely shut down. 
um, the other issues um, a little more political and with the way that there's been lots of restructuring on our foreign visa processes and constraints and bureaucratic um, challenges with that. Not only because of COVID, but due to politics, those programs are also under under siege. I think is a fair <laughs> a fair way of putting it. It's probably kind without of being a, too political here. Um, Y'all know what I'm saying. <laughs> uh, and so the the problem is that um, a these programs are being gutted across the board, and b even when they're not, they're very very expensive. So having to provide a certain level of wages and housing and food and all this kind of stuff is very very expensive. Mm -hmm. um, and most of the ways in which these visas are, are are done and these programs are done is by hiring third party like multinational labor contractors that can then source the labor from the home from the, the third country, navigate the bureaucracy administration here to to secure visas and logistics everything, and so it, it's it's a whole very expensive convoluted process. And the, the problem with that is then the, the wineries and that can't afford to do things by the book are still then pushed into using undocumented labor, of which there is still an abundance here in California. Um, and that's where it becomes sort of completely off the radar. Like we have no information on that, except for larger just investigative stories on migrant workers and agricultural stuff yeah. in this country. But it often leads to pretty... Um, dismal situations um, and you know extremely low if not illegally low pay um, even less regulations around hours worked um, and that ultimately is a really bad recipe um, for people trying to make a living alright so before we jump into um, more of the what we're looking for and why we know when to pick it um, I've helped me pour some wine. Sounds good to me. All right, you want to tell us uh, what we're drinking today? I am happy to read out the label, but you've tasted this before, so you can actually speak a little bit more to it. Um, so today, we are drinking a 2019 Malvasia Bianca, which is closely known as an orange wine. It's from California. Uh, and the company is The Wonderful Wine Co. And it is one of my wink, which is a wine, <laughs> you made a face, uh, wine shipment companies that I enjoy. And so typically orange wines, or at least I've had one and I've very much enjoyed it from Kivelstad, um, a winery that we've spoken about before, is that they're funky. And the process in which they're made, which Kevin will explain, is interesting and gives a lot of um, like experimental, funky notes to the wine. So I am excited to try this one, which I think was like one of the last they were offering on the Wink profile. Yeah, orange wine is an episode unto itself, so I'm, I'm not going to go into too much here mm. because it's one of my favorite topics. And I'd love to talk more about the, the larger history of, of orange wines and, and the process that goes into it. Um, but basically, orange wines, as you're going to see them available most places around here, um, are sort of 
um, a subcategory of the sort of natural organic wine movement. It's also an episode unto itself. <laughs> the label <laughs> is clean wine, sustainably farmed, vegan friendly. Yeah, which exactly. Isn't all wine and th- that's that's about marketing. <laughs> it's not. There's not much in that. But <laughs> basically, basically, orange wine is is similar to white wine in its um, the way it's made. Um, but the wine sits in its skins for slightly longer, and that is what gives it a little bit more texture and tannin. A little bit extra flavor, and of course the orange color by which it gets his name. And one of the reasons it's not super common is that the color is really not marketable um, <laughs> in stores. It, it looks like wine that has turned. It just looks like a Chardonnay that you aged too long and has now turned to vinegar. So it's it's not the most attractive looking thing in the world. Um, but the results are really, really exciting, and you can find some really cool stuff. And this is the only one I've ever had made from Malvasi Bianca grapes, which is a, an Italian white varietal that tends to make extremely um, sweet yeah. and juicy and almost syrupy uh, white wines. Which you get from the nose. It smells yeah. like ambrosia. It smells like nectar like a sweet nectar and stone fruit like you get your tangerine in the nose yeah I think when, when you drink it, it tastes like nothing you would expect from this grape not in a million years but I ever <laughs> able to tell you blind what grape varietal this was made from um, but this is there's so a weird. lot a lot of flavor <laughs> There's a lot of flavor for a generally considered to be a white wine. Um, there's a lot going on here. It almost reminds me of a beer. Um, hmm. Yeah. And, and the amount of, it's almost like a hoppiness. It's not hoppiness, but that's sort of like the earthiness and the flavor you can taste you generally don't get from whites. Um, that's what really stands out to me. Hoppy or, or um, like sour beer, like true Basque. Mm-hmm sour beers that you'll get i guess they're ciders but um a basque cider yeah that has that bit of bitterness to it um and as kevin was saying the weight you it definitely sits on the tongue it lingers in the mouth and it's i want to say it's not terribly acidic it's pretty balanced acidity Mm -hmm. But it definitely has a nice long finish, which is pretty uncommon as well. I really don't know what it tastes like. I'm so glad we put it in the freezer. <laughs> it needed to be cold. Yeah. Again, it's 100 plus degrees today. Mm-hmm. This overly chilled wine tastes really good. It reminds me of something, and I can't put my finger on it. It's really funny. Just like the glasses and the wine bottle are completely covered in mist from the heat in the house, even though it's what, 80 in here at least? It's wicked warm. Are you reading the label? Yeah, there's not much um, actual information about the wine. It's all these just sort of marketing gimmicks. Mm-hmm. 
and taglines. <laughs> There's like nothing, <laughs> nothing educational or informative at all about the the labeling. Which is also an episode when we talk about labeling. Find <laughs> <Combined> descriptions. <laughs> yeah, maybe we'll pick our favorite like in topics like the funkiest one or not funkiest like the weirdest wine description the most accurate and then the i don't know most adventurous i do admire people who are at least creative (laughs) um so shall we dive back into harvest yeah so my last sort of big thing to talk about here is the um, how to, how to tell when a grape is ready to be harvested, what are all the different factors that winemakers are looking for, and what, you know, what, what affects that timing. Great. Well, I snuck that comment in with my description of winemakers who walk around in the vineyards. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, at least my research, and then kind of went through the weight of the grapes mm-hmm. and their coloring so as far as I remember reading grapes typically are pretty green for quite a while and then once they start changing hue there's um, a time period did you read about veración? okay nope great so I read about this word called v-e-r-a-i-s-o-n I don't know. It's pronounced in some way, um, which is the time in which uh, the ripe, the grape is ripening, uh, and that's when harvest. That's when you know harvest should start beginning. And there's about a, a thirty to seventy day time period in which this process is occurring, and you can kind of tell via the shape of the grape, the weight of it other factors that Kevin will speak about? Yeah, I think the biggest one that I kept finding was um, tannin levels. So hmm. this kind of goes along with just the general, like what you think of when you think of like ripeness. Is it ripe or not? Um, when you put that grape in your mouth, you're going to get a feel for the tannin. And there's sort of a general consensus within each varietal as to how much tannin you're tasting as to what that says about how ready it is. And that's basically just the, the most basic measure, I guess, of how ripe um, a grape is, besides the color as the first indicator. And the tannin comes from skin thickness, correct? Sure. Yeah, yeah, I think, <laughs> from what I remember. <laughs> it's like, because the, the tannin come, is often in the skin as well as in the stems and seeds. And... Um, the riper a grape is, as we discussed in our climate issue, the sweeter it becomes and the higher the alcohol content um, and it, the changes in tannin level. Mm-hmm. Well, another thing was just checking the, the vines for either rot or grapes that have sort of turned into raisins. Yes. Um, rot meaning there's too much water and they are past the point of needing to be harvested. Um, and raisiny doesn't actually mean bad because you can still retain a lot of the flavor in a more raisiny grape. So a little bit dried up can be okay. That's also going to be a good indication that um, yeah, it's time to, time to start picking. Um, so something that I always really enjoy thinking about is the actual feeling of 
harvesting grapes, and so particularly with the, or at least what was portrayed in the smaller vineyards, you know, these long hours harvesting grapes, you get a feel for what you're looking for as well as how to clean and sort them. And so like part of the process of harvesting is uh, you either there's a conveyor belt that kind of moves the grapes along and you could have either digital programs that can recognize damaged or broken grapes and kind of it was kind of like air cannon them off <laughs> the conveyor belt so that it doesn't go into the fire pro final process or you spread them out on a table and there's the sorting mechanism of you know recognizing okay there's this one's damaged this one looks really old and shriveled this has a lot of bugs um that goes into kind of selecting what what grapes go into the crushing machine. And yeah, um, I don't know if you have more <laughs> thoughts on sorting and cleaning. No, not really. I mean, um, another thing that was interesting was the, the color of both the grape, but also the seeds and the stems themselves. Um, so that's another good way of, of measuring how ripe a fruit is, is the more brown the, the seeds become, the more mature um, those grapes are. Um, and I think that would also come out in the sorting process as well. Yeah, I think I was reading about how, like the decision of how long to keep the stem and seeds in, because particularly with different uh, machines that do harvesting, they will put, you know, like everything kind of falls into the the back of the truck, so to speak. And so with white wines in particular, you really don't want too many stems or seeds to be with the grapes for too long because it could affect the taste. And so there's all, that's like another reason why white wine is preferably harvested a little bit more gently, or at least there's a quicker turnaround between harvesting and sorting to ensure that when it goes into the crusher, the stems and seeds aren't too long with the grapes. Um, and I double-checked, Viracion is the time period in which the grapes are ripening <laughs> prior to harvest. <laughs> Again, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, but uh, it's just like, it's, the, it's adopted from French, of course, um, for that time period. And as you mentioned before, um, a common tool that people overseeing vineyards will carry with them to sort of, you know, walk the vineyards and test for, for ripeness is the refractometer. Yes. Or, is that how you say it? <laughs> I thought so. Refractometer. Refractometer. I don't know. Ooh, refractometer sounds more science <laughs> Um But this sounds really cool. Mm -hmm. And basically what this does is it tests grape juice for sugar levels by refracting light and measuring that in bricks. And basically sugar, the more sugar you have, it makes the liquid more dense and therefore reflects, refracts more light. So the refractometer, refractometer, <laughs> um, is a really good scientific tool also um, to, to get your bricks reading on, on the grapes. Which then requires your workers to know how to read said mm -hmm. readings. Um. Yeah. And it's testing for pH too. Yeah. Um, so measuring sugar versus acid um, in the pH levels as well. And there's, I was reading a little bit about the dance between, you know, um, with particular varietals, you need to put them in barrels sooner rather than later. And so you have to make sure you have space 
in the, the yeah. different machinery. So there's this dance between, you know, harvesting, cleaning, sorting, getting it in the machine, crushing it, moving it into a barrel, and keeping that system fast and quick so that you don't have grapes either sitting in in baskets or, or big containers for too long and thus, you know, ripening quicker. Nor do you have them sitting in, you know, whatever processes which will one day go into more uh, of the fermentation and, and, and whatnot. So that yeah. seems, it's, it's a high pressure scenario and, and I can imagine you learn a lot very quickly. Yeah, well and those types of factors too can also determine when a grape is actually harvested. If mm -hmm. you don't have space in your tanks, you're going to wait until you can actually <laughs> reap the benefits of harvesting that fruit. And those sort of other like external factors are including things like, do we have enough people to pick the grapes in a timely fashion um, that can continue that, that pressured cycle to make sure everything is timed right? And those types of decisions can also um, have sea grapes be picked early or potentially late as well, um, despite what the other science and, and nature is telling the winemaker about the grape. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess like my final note on that was it was really great to look on Instagram for these harvest stories, just because at least among the hashtag of Harvest 2020, uh, the I don't know, it just it despite the fact that it was a high intensity labor time and you never really know what factors may throw off a harvest, it was full of. Which is like a lot of energy and a lot of excitement because this is what you've been waiting for as a winemaker. Like after this, I feel from a very unexperienced position that there's a lot more control to the product of the wine after this point. But up until harvest, you know, you're really relying on weather to be friendly and you know that you have enough resources in order to do this harvest and when the harvest is happening it must be like quick shoots of lightning right you're just there you're working it's intense maybe you eat you relax maybe you sleep and then it's over and then and then i guess the the time for playing with the wine and the varietals happens and so there are lots of really great stories on instagram about that process and how different vine vineyards uh vineyards and, and wineries kind of deal with it and, and have fun with it and try to capture it in pictures and videos, which I think is really worth looking at. So. Let's do some wine of the week. You wanna go good. first? Sure. So, I feel like I'm just being a PR person for Wink, but, um, which I can be, maybe. I'll Wink think about it. <laughs> Consider that an application. <laughs> I'd be really good at it. So I really, I had a, a great shipment of wine last time, which included the orange wine we're drinking right now, the wonderful Wine Co., as well as something called Honey Beast, which is a white blend from 2019 from Paso Robles in California. And it was magic. It was absolutely amazing, and I'll tell you why. So my Vivino entry on this was that it is silk smooth and almost creamy. There is a weight that suggests crispness and sweetness, but it has this like almost soft honey paired with acidity and bright apricots. Looking at the grapes, it's a Roussan and Marsan, and I 
think we've met, mentioned Marsan grapes before. I think so. And if we haven't, it's a type of grape that is kind of funky and typically, correct me if I'm wrong, sort of Chardonnay-ish, but tends to err on the side of extreme oaky or creaminess. Mm-hmm. And I typically do not like this grape. I'm not an oaky Chardonnay f- fan. I like creamy or buttery Chardonnays, but oaky is a little bit beyond my favorite. But the Roussan grape is something I'm really leaning into, which typically has a little bit more of that creaminess. And this wine, the Honey Beast, married the creamy, a touch of sweetness, the bright acidity, and a bit of apricot in what was a magical Mm -hmm. experience. And I think... Yes, this was during wildfires, so no one could come visit me, and I had to drink the wine myself over oh, a course no. of a week, and it was terrible oh, no. and also magical. So yeah. <laughs> that was my wine of the week. I really liked that wine, and it, when I when I got it, I also got it in my own wink, wink shipment a few months ago. I thought I was gonna hate it. I mean, usually white wines are described as honey, means they're gonna have a sweetness to it, that syrupy, sugary kind of edge in it that I generally don't don't like um but yeah this was really cool so great great shout out to the Roussan grape as well Roussan grape I truly believe that if, if it wasn't for the name recognition of Chardonnays we would be pulling up all of the Chardonnay like vineyards across the state and planting Roussan <laughs> vastly superior yes so anyway if you want our take on what to grow for next harvest Lena, and not that that it works that way but if it were to work that way <laughs> Give us a shout out. We vote Rasan. Or at least use it and like blend it in there. Do something with it because yeah. it just does really, really cool things on its own or, or blend it in. Um, and my one of the week um, was a random one I, I had on a busy Wednesday. And I was headed to my brother's house to get some work done. And I just grabbed a random bottle. And it happened to be a South Australian Sangiovese Grenache blend. Wow. Um, it was called Cellar Works. And I believe it's from, you can purchase it on Naked Wines. Um, not, not super expensive or anything. And I must have bought it because it was a cool blend. I don't think Sangiovese is usually used as much of a blending grape, um, especially outside of Italy. I don't think I've ever really seen it with Grenache, and I think it was almost a 50-50 split. It's maybe 56% Sangiovese, 44% um, Grenache. And it was weird. Um, Sounds weird. <laughs> you know, it wasn't, wasn't one of my favorite things in the world, but it was really fun to try. Hmm. Um, it was really, really um, bitter fruit, um, hmm. like cranberry, currant, kind of notes going on. Um, it was quite bitter in its earthiness as well. It had that um, that California Grenache bite to it. Um, because it was more medium bodied, it really did well on a, of course, another very, very hot day that we were having. So it was a pretty, pretty easy drinking wine uh, that we had just, just below room temperature, which was really nice. Hmm. Um, but yeah, just another indication that there's really cool, interesting stuff happening in, in the Australian wine scene. We'll have to continue to to bring that up where we can. Yeah. Yeah, big thank you to all the people working the 
working the vineyards um, any year, but especially in years like this where um, you know, everyone's dealing with pandemic concerns, climate change concerns resulting in fires and unbreathable air across the state of California. Just a huge shout out to everyone doing the hard work to, to bring the wine to us that we really enjoy drinking. Yeah, and and hopefully we'll get more into these issues that about harvesting and, and just the winemaking process in general and have fun talking to you about it. So thanks for tuning in and we'll bring you more wine news sometime in the future. <laughs>